What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat! Go ahead and laugh, you guys. If I ever find a little bastard, it's business. Dead meat. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast, an extension of the YouTube channel Dead Meat. I'm James. I'm Chelsea, and we're engaged, and we like to get scared together. Hey, it's happening. We're finally talking about Godzilla on the Dead Meat Podcast. With someone who actually knows what they're talking about yes. when it comes to Godzilla. Our friend Derek, aka D-Man1954 on YouTube. If you're into Godzilla at all, and you uh, hang out on YouTube... <laughs> You probably know this guy. Uh, he basically came to my attention because it seems he is just a Godzilla expert. He knows, he really knows his stuff. And I'm so excited to have him on here to kind of walk us through specifically this first movie, which James and I just watched last night, the original 1954 Japanese version, not the Americanized version, which I didn't realize is just a re-edit of I thought it was a straight up remake, but it it's like a re-edit with stuff put into it. But yeah. Anyway, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into the movie? Yeah. Welcome, Derek. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for having <laughs> me. I'm just it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, I guess like I've I've grown up with Godzilla my whole life. I my earliest memories are of of watching Godzilla movies in my basement when my dad would like be working in the office. So I've I've always lived with these movies and over the years I started to get really more interested in them academically I started to realize that there's something to them they're not just you know silly monster movies like I think a lot of people interpret them as and so I guess over the past few years especially once I started my YouTube channel back in 2014 I've really dedicated myself to trying to learn everything about these movies and and spread a little bit more awareness as to what for me, what Godzilla would mean to me, and I hope I could spread that to other people so that they can see it too. So that's kind of my mission at the moment in life. Yeah, it's interesting that that I I totally understand that feeling of realizing something I enjoy. There's more to it, and it has an unfair reputation of not being taken so seriously. And by that, you know, I mean horror in general is is a bit overlooked, but there's so much to dig into there. And I even, uh, I read uh, part of this, like a good chunk of this book that was recommended to me by a lot of people on Twitter when I was asking about Godzilla resources in general. This uh, book by David Callett, it's a critical history and filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. And his intro to that book, he... He says essentially the same the same thing you just kind of expressed, where he really hates that Godzilla as a series uh, isn't taken seriously, and that people overlook how much you can read into Godzilla as a phenomenon, like why it resonated so hard when it came out, and how much the evolution of the series is really fascinating and is so much more than just the eventually really goofy movies that they become. I haven't seen, I've seen, I mean, basically this first one, I really haven't seen any Godzilla movies that I 
Yeah, I feel like I probably saw the Matthew Broderick yeah. one when it came out, but I don't remember it. And then my my only experience with this series is from yesterday watching that original Godzilla movie. <laughs> so uh, like I was saying before we started recording, my role here is the uninformed person who is here to learn about Godzilla because I think it's fascinating. You know, Godzilla is all over horror conventions. Whenever we go to them, there's always like whole corners mm-hmm. of the floor devoted to uh, kaiju. And I, I, I look over there with like... It's kind of like the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Les Miserables uh, gif. Oh, the gif of Russell Crowe. Of Russell Crowe, yeah. Where he's like <laughs> looking through that window. Just yeah, like, that's oh, us. all these people having fun over there. And I, I can't be a part of it because I have no idea what that world is like. Yeah. So I'm very excited to at least get a little glimpse into that world. Because if I had all the time in the world, I would sit down and watch the... How many movies are there? Do you, do you know a number yeah, off the top of your head? Yeah, there's 35. 35, oh, okay. That's a little less than I thought. I thought they were like 50-something, so, you okay. Know, like, now yeah. you, you know, because it's it's funny. With film series, if you say, oh, there's 35 movies in a film series, it's like, that seems like so much fucking time. But then you think, if you told me there were 35 episodes of a TV show, I would, I would sit and watch it. Or even, yeah, uh, I guess a fair comparison, assuming most of these movies are around 90 minutes, uh, less than 70 episodes of yeah. a tv series and that's it's totally doable. that's totally doable you know, so really... maybe i should sit down and do it uh well i want to give a quick shout out as well because i also bought a book for this episode it was the ashiro honda biography this Ooh. was written by Stephen rifle and ed godachewski who are both godzilla historians as is david Callett. so these these are people that really know what they're talking about and, and honda's um, the director of this honda first is one. the director well he directed not just the first one but he, he went on to direct like seven or eight of them I, I could be lowballing him but he did he did a, a fair amount and then he yeah so he, he so pretty, he wa- he wasn't just like a, a gun for hire for this first one he like shepherded the series kind of sort of like he he didn't get the the reputation right away as like a monster guy but he he first directed this movie and this was obviously japan's first big monster movie it was it was outside of some king kong ripoffs back in the 30s that had been lost to time this was their first step into giant monsters and so he didn't gain a reputation until he started to do other kaiju non-Godzilla works. In, like, 1956, he did Rodan and a couple others. And so uh, over time, he gained this reputation. Then they brought him back into the franchise in 1962, and he stayed a main staple until 1975 when they retired the series. So, so. and Honda, too, he worked with Kurosawa, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He So they started out learning together they were like neighbors so they grew up with each other and they knew all about this stuff together they learned together on how to make movies honda was drafted into the war three times world war ii and so during that time kurosawa was picking up some notoriety notoriety and um yeah then honda eventually came back and they both started making films and they kind of like went their separate ways you know their own paths but then in the end when honda retired from filmmaking in 1975 or after 1975 he eventually looped back in and started working as an assistant director with Kurosawa and he helped co-write a bunch of Kurosawa films and and yeah so they have had like career collaborations interspersed throughout their careers but definitely towards the end they were they were working together a lot it's so wild to me that I think if you you know if you have kind of a cursory understanding of Japanese film if you were like okay what is kind of the scale in terms of genre of like the range of Japanese 
movies and i feel like one end is kurosawa like art house Mm -hmm. beautiful prestige like (laughs) universally accepted as just brilliant films and then on the other end perception wise you have these monster movies these godzilla movies and it is interesting that these two guys were so closely interlinked uh throughout their lives and i think yeah lens credence to the idea that Godzilla is worth taking more seriously. The fact that, you know, this director is friends with Kurosawa. He's a serious filmmaker. There's meaning behind these movies, even if maybe we perceive them to be this kind of schlock or, you know, just kind of cheesy movies. You you mentioned Rodan there, which I've heard the name. I don't know what that fellow looks like, but uh, yeah, you mentioned that they're another kaiju. Is it in the same universe as Godzilla? And was yeah. it always intended to be, I guess, is my other question. So, like, you know how everyone gives credit to the Marvel movies for being the first cinematic universe? And mm-hmm. we all know that Universal was the first to do it, right? But sure. <laughs> I just got to give credit here sure, so sure, I look yeah. like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 but in the 1950s, when Toho kicked off this big science fiction trend, it was so popular. Godzilla was just such a huge success that they did a sequel the year after. It came out six months after the sequel wow. without Honda. He wasn't involved. And then Rodan came the year after that. That's like a giant pterodactyl monster. Mothra came in 1961. And I, I think, you know, Mothra, at least, maybe like the idea. Mothra's, the if moth. I had to pick my favorite, Mothra's my favorite. It's, she, a, it's a moth, she's right? She's so cute. Yeah, it's a a basically a venomoth. Yeah. She's a giant. She's just like really adorable. Mm. She's a big fluffy yeah. moth. I love <laughs> Yeah, her. exactly. Exactly. I was like, I don't know how else to explain that other than the name kind of gives it away. But yeah. Um, yeah, Mothra came out, and then that was a huge success. And there were some others in between there that aren't as notable. But in 1962, uh, Toho did King Kong vs. Godzilla, where they got the rights to Kong. It wasn't part of the King Kong franchise, but or, or like not part of the continuity, but it's it was like the first collaboration. Then they realized that there was something to be said for crossovers. So they retroactively went, yeah, those other movies are in the Godzilla universe. And they started doing crossovers with the characters. I was wondering, I'd always, yeah, I, I never quite understood how all those other monsters fit in or like why that became a th- just this giant cast <laughs> of characters, all these different monsters. That's so interesting that like retroactively we kind of decided to like stitch them all together. <laughs> so yeah. are there are there kaiju? Is kaiju a a more broad term that also includes giant monsters who aren't within the Godzilla universe? Uh, see, this is one of those terms that like <laughs> everyone has their own definition for. As far as I'm concerned, I'll take the the word to mean what it means. In Japanese, it means like giant monster, strange beast. So any monster is a kaiju, but people get really particular about like a kaiju has to be specifically Japanese, not necessarily part of the Godzilla franchise, but it has to be specifically Japanese and it has to be like a certain size in order to qualify as a kaiju. And so they, they get very particular with that. So like under your more uh, broad interpretation of the word, like would Cloverfield would you consider yeah. him a kaiju? Okay. Yeah, big time, yeah. Cloverfield okay. was inspired by kaiju movies. It's a mm-hmm. giant monster in the same vein as Godzilla and these guys, so I definitely would. So you mentioned King Kong, and I was actually reading about how King Kong is really 
one of the big reasons that Godzilla even exists. And I thought this was so interesting. Um, Because, you know, we talked a lot about this in our episode about remakes, the fact that, and we take this for granted now, and when you think back to how experiencing film used to be, it's so nuts that when a movie came out in theaters, that was it. You would go to see it, and as far as you knew, that was the only time you were ever going to see it, and then it's gone. So people went and saw King Kong when it came out. I forget what year, 30... 1933. Yes. So King Kong comes out. uh, It blows people's minds. That production is insane, by the way. Just reading about the making of King Kong. Just unprecedented. The money spent on the effects. Like, it is truly, like, for its time, just game changer. Uh, But, yeah, so people see this movie and for decades after tell their their kids and stuff about King Kong and he almost becomes this this legend you know you have to see it to believe it you know you can only describe it to your kids because they can't see it and so uh it was re-released in 1952 or three it was released in the 50s and it just shattered box office records people were so pumped to go see king kong people who had seen it and wanted to see it again people who uh weren't old enough to see it and had heard stories about it from their parents like it just was a a phenomenon and that's kind of what i think really inspired the concept of godzilla it was like well we want to do something like this and that's why Godzilla you know watching it we were both like oh this feels like King Kong a little bit the complete destruction of these miniature cities which I also read was a miserable process uh, (laughs) to make all these models and to just get the physics to look right because you know if you build a model city and you think oh we'll just build all these buildings and you only see the outside of them so but when you only build the outside of a building, when it gets crushed, the physics just aren't right. If there's mm-hmm. nothing inside, so they had to go back and build all these buildings with like the structure inside all the rooms and stuff. It sounds miserable. Do you know anything more about the behind the scenes like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the the crew of Godzilla, a few of the crew, including the producer and special effects director, so that's Tomiyuki Tanaka and Eiji Tsuburaya, both were big King Kong fans. They, they loved Kong. And then the actor who played Godzilla, Haru Nakajima, studied King Kong in order to figure out how to play Godzilla. That was one of the things he studied. And then when making the sets and everything, it was like they had to travel out because they they didn't get blueprints back then. They couldn't get blueprints to everything. So the cast or so the crew had had to travel out to all these places and like go up on these rooftops and map out, Okay, these are the buildings we can knock down and stuff. There's actually stories of they were talking about like, all right, we'll blow up this building over here and knock down this building and we can do something with this one. And and a security guard overheard them and they wound up getting approached by police asking what they were doing. But (laughs) it was like it was like crazy. So they, they, they had to go through like go. I couldn't even imagine the work just going out and asking for blueprints, knocking them, and then you have to do the measurements yourself, and then you go and, and make these models. And I know that A.G. Subaraya was a perfectionist, and so if the models weren't up to his standards, he would have them entirely scrapped and rebuilt. And so it was like all that work for nothing. Plus, this is the first time they've ever done this in Japan. They've never done this before, so they have nothing yeah. to work from. And that's the, the thing, the comparison, too, with King Kong that's so interesting is the team making King Kong 
they didn't have any reference point for you know the the techniques and the uh the camera tricks and just everything going into that movie there was nothing like it and so they had there weren't any experts to come in and help with the effects like they were just kind of on their own and it was similar i imagine with godzilla there's no they can't just ask someone for help they're just kind of inventing this this movie technique as they go along it's it's really wild hey want to talk about our sponsor this week keeps so I've been doing a lot of genealogy research. I'm super into that. My family's really into it. And I especially love learning about my great uncle who was the mayor of Montreal back in the 1920s. And I just found this article from him where he actually has a quote about going bald. Apparently he <laughs> went bald from the stress of campaigning and all the work he did. And he says that no man has any right to expect a luxuriant growth both inside and outside his skull. So if you've got big brain syndrome like my uncle apparently had or you maybe have genetic hair loss as uh, the men in my family apparently do lots of men in their 20s start experiencing it you'll know if you've inherited that trait pretty early on and the best way to treat baldness is prevention so as soon as you notice that you're thinning out on top keeps maybe what does the trick and you can get treated right from home you normally would have to go to a doctor's office to get a hair loss prescription but now keeps will mail medication right to you and they also offer the generic versions of medication which is a great way to save money it's still the same thing i won't go on a rant about medical patents but generic versions keeps save money good. So if you're ready to try Keeps and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash deadmeat to get your first month of treatment for free. And that's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash deadmeat. Our other sponsor this week is HelloFresh Meal Kit Delivery Service. James and I love HelloFresh. We are very bad at uh, putting variety into what we eat. I personally don't really cook. I'm very bad at it. Um, James is much better at cooking, but he doesn't have a ton of time to do so. And those two things, us two, are just a recipe for a disaster. It's very hard for us to keep a good, healthy diet. But HelloFresh is super helpful. It takes, each meal takes like 30 minutes to cook. And like I said, there is a great variety, which is nice for me because I don't eat red meat. I get the vegetarian HelloFresh meals and they keep those from being boring, which I really appreciate because I think there's maybe an idea that vegetarians are fine eating boring food or the same food or just like I can't just eat leafy greens all day I'm not a dinosaur and also just getting stuff delivered right now is very helpful um COVID is gonna get worse for the holidays so we should especially be more careful now and not go out whenever we can avoid it so getting meals delivered is a perfect way to do so so if you want to try hellofresh go to hellofresh.com deadmeat90 and use code deadmeat90 to get $90 off including free shipping and again that's hellofresh.com deadmeat nine zero use code dead meat nine zero to get ninety dollars off including free shipping 
But yeah, I also wanted to talk a lot about, because this was something I thought was so interesting watching this movie. I, I always knew that Godzilla was very heavily a metaphor for nuclear power, you know, the, the terror of science, the trauma of the aftermath of World War they II. They use the phrase weapon of mass destruction oh, in the yeah. film. I, yeah. I also, I just wasn't, ex- you know, I wasn't expecting how, it's not subtext, it's just text. That is what the movie's about. And I, I just had imagined that it was gonna be extremely subtextual but it wasn't. This movie is very much about trauma of, you know, the, the aftermath of an experience like that. And I was really taken aback by it, actually. Not only with Godzilla himself, but also the means to destroy him. This, uh, what is it? The oxygen the destroyer? Oxygen destroyer. Uh, and that, like, the weapon to destroy Godzilla is created and just outright said, I made this for science. I don't want it to be used as a weapon. I'm afraid of politicians using it as a means of war. Like just yeah. this is dialogue. I actually do yeah. you mind. So at this David Callett book, um, I was really um, this, this passage from the introduction in it, I thought does such a good job of framing like why Godzilla like why that movie plays out like it does and just like what kind of world this movie um came into being in and i thought it this was really poignant and if i hope this actually doesn't go on for too long i tried to keep my highlights here brief so so yeah in this introduction he says uh i must ask you to accompany me on a brief thought experiment first cast your mind back to the terrorist attacks on new york city and washington dc on september 11th 2001 remember the outpouring of anger hatred and patriotism that followed those tragedies remember the flags the window signs proclaiming these colors never run god bless america and we will never forget remember when you first heard of osama bin laden and the way in which he came and his al-qaeda organization quickly became universal icons of evil and villainy Think of the myriad ways in which that pivotal moment altered popular culture and how television programs like Lost, Battlestar Galactic on 24 sampled aspects of that real-life horror to explore in richly nuanced fictional contexts. Now imagine the same events, but with one small but critical difference. Imagine that the attacks of 9-11 did not just wound America, but crippled it. Imagine the United States was unable to respond militarily, unable to rebuild itself without outside help, and that such help came from only one source, Al-Qaeda. Imagine as the dust settled on Ground Zero in New York City, Osama bin Laden came forward and offered to help rebuild, to help care for the injured, to not only make peace, but to become America's brother, ally, friend. There would be but one price for such seeming generosity. The United States would need to admit that it had, been, it had deserved to be attacked. America had to realize that by its misbehavior, it had left Al-Qaeda with no choice and would now have to redesign its society to be more like them. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, obviously that's not a one-to-one comparison, but it is a really interesting way to frame what it must have been like to be in Japan after World War II, um, especially living through years of, of wartime propaganda, uh, and then to all of a sudden be told, no, 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 actually you guys were wrong and you deserved it and we're going to you know, your culture has to adjust to our norms now and you can't be mad about it. 
you can't be outwardly angry that you had the bomb dropped on you. It's really heavy shit, but I think this framing does such a good job of making you think a little bit of what that must have been like and in terms of how that would have affected artistic expression in post-war years because it was pretty, you know, maybe not expressly forbidden. Uh, There was actually, you know, free speech was instituted in Japan, but also that constitution was written by... The Americans so it's like there's not much outlet to really be angry and to really discuss well actually should this have happened was this okay was America right and so and actually it says in here that right around 1954 these kind of anti-American groups and anti-American sentiments were finally starting to be you know, a bit more like vocal in the press and it was starting to be, you know, a bit more on the surface rather than super repressed. And so that's that's what the world that Godzilla comes into. And I think that that's really important to to think about when we consider him as a symbol of the bomb, because not only is he a symbol of the bomb itself, but also it's just the pain of your entire cultural identity and what you've what you've thought all these years leading up to this about where you live and the people around you and you know your inherent worth as a people I I don't know I I thought that that intro was very very interesting yeah it's interesting it's it's obviously you know not a one-to-one no and he even says he's like I don't he's like I don't mean to actually explicitly draw that comparison but just as a thought exercise I think it puts you in the right kind of mental space to really get how you know why like just crazy that shift is well yeah especially because Godzilla comes out less than a decade after the two atomic bombs were dropped you know that that'd be like if a movie came out now about if something crazy happened in 2011 like it's not that long ago. Yeah. You know, or if a or if a movie came out in 2010 about you know the 9/11. And you said you said Honda. He was drafted. How many times was he uh, conscripted? Yeah, he was drafted. He was drafted three times into war by the Imperial Army, and he was like a major pacifist. So it was like a really hard thing for him to do. I I'll be honest. I haven't read those portions of the biography yet, but I know that his time in the war. It scarred him forever. Like this was something mm-hmm. he didn't want. It was something he didn't believe in, and it was something that weighed heavily on him every day. What happened? What he had to do, and he was towards the end of the war. He was captured by the Chinese and held as a prisoner of war. And he was in in a in a POW camp when he found out that the atomic bombs had been dropped and that Japan had lost. So like, imagine being in his position. You're fighting a war you don't believe in. You're a prisoner for some country that you didn't want to go to war with, and now you're told that your country has been decimated like I can't even imagine what that must have felt like but that's the kind of thing that that weighed on him and that's why he was such a pacifist and why he was a very passive person in general like uh, there's a tons of uh tons of people talking about the fact that as a director he's never outwardly critical you know he never wants to upset anybody he's always very inwardly contained and he never talks about a lot of this stuff because it was just such a trauma to go through and Mm -hmm. you can extend that to the whole country the whole country has been massively traumatized by what happens we've seen in america you know what happened following 9-11 i think it's perfect that that comparison was drawn because it's something i think about a lot as well as imagine 
you know, nine years after 9-11, if, if we got movies depicting those events, not one-to-one, like Godzilla is obviously not the atomic bomb, but so graphically, I think that would have been very shocking for a lot of people. And so I think there's a lot to unpack there with what you just talked about. But yeah, yes. it is very yeah. upsetting. I, I think that's why. And I'm, I'm really glad that we, because we kind of went back and forth on how we wanted to discuss Godzilla and like what to even focus on because there's so much and ultimately I think we both came to the conclusion like let's just do the original why not you know and a lot of people on Twitter were even asking oh are you gonna do the the American uh one that came out in 56 and I just wanted to like really I just wanted to do the first one like let's just Mm -hmm. yeah could you actually tell me a little bit more about the American version because what I'm assuming is that you know Godzilla came out in 54 in Japan was a, I'm assuming a giant hit. America got wind of it and was like, oh, uh, you know, American distributors or studios got wind of it and were like, oh, we would also like money. So they what, got the rights to it and then re-edited some more Americanized context with it. <laughs> Is it kind of like a Power sort Rangers of, yeah. thing where you take this footage and you like... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, like a MXC. little bit, yeah. <laughs> Actually, interestingly... Uh, before I before I get into the full answer, like about the Power Rangers comparison, the sequel to Godzilla, Godzilla Raids Again, that was the exact idea. We're going to strip all the footage, just the special effects, and then we're going to write new stuff around that. So that was what they wanted to do. They didn't get to do that because the company that was going to do that collapsed after having the suits shipped to them by Toho, and then the suits are now lost forever. But that's a whole nother no. story. Oh, no. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> oh. sad. But... Oh, no, they actually... It's pretty sad. But uh, with... with the original um it was actually a producer named edmund goldman who discovered this movie called godzilla and that's another i would just say um, americans always think that we created the name godzilla and we definitely didn't it was toho (laughs) created the name but he discovered this movie called godzilla and he was like i've got ideas for this he's like uh kind of a schlocky director like or a producer he wasn't like an art house guy so he didn't (laughs) necessarily aim for the art house audience with it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to mass market this movie. So they hired a, a director and they went in and they shot new scenes starring Raymond Burr and Burr's character is like a reporter flying to Japan and he's going there to visit his friend, Sarazawa, who he conveniently never interacts with on screen. But he's going <laughs> to visit so his funny. friend, and he's got his little interpreter. And so they just go around basically watching the movie from an outside perspective, like a very weird, recut, restructured version of the movie. But they go around watching it from their outside perspective. And that's kind of the way it's framed. It's all like half of it's told through flashback as well so that Burr can narrate the whole thing and it will seem seamless that he's not actually on screen, but he's still a presence, you know, that kind of thing. It's so weird. It's Especially really weird. for the love story stuff. Like, why <laughs> is do that? You... Is that all still present, that love it, story? It is. So it's such a it's such a strange movie. I don't think <laughs> there's really anything like it outside of it where he is such a presence in that first half of his movie in the first half of Godzilla King of the Monsters he's such a presence and then he just disappears because he couldn't be there for a lot of these dramatic scenes and so all of a sudden it becomes this story about characters who he's not or who he really doesn't interact with a lot and he just has to be like here's what they're up to and and they try their best not to dub the movie they only dub scenes that absolutely needed to be where they couldn't have an interpreter or where Burr couldn't be there himself and so it like leads to a lot of very bad translation errors and lots of 
lots of things are like twisted around so that they are a little more palatable for Americans because you know this would have been such a hard film for Americans to sit through. I also was reading that one of the because when you I think if you asked you know like Family Feud style things you associate with Godzilla, <laughs> one of the things people <laughs> might answer is really bad dubbing. Like that's kind of a joke mm-hmm. that the Godzilla movies have bad dubs and that you know the mouths don't match and but that's not. The, the Japanese filmmakers intent or fault it's that's a result of importing it over to America and it's so unfortunate that that then just is what we associate with these movies themselves and not the, the mm-hmm. you know import of them as a product from another country yeah did the American yeah. version do well at the box office Oh, it wasn't like top 10 or anything, but it was a big hit. And okay. a, a lot of that can be, I think a lot of people attribute that to what they call like the depoliticization of the movie. They like cut out all the political aspects. The producers have always maintained that that was not a political move. It was because any of the scenes, like the people on the subway cart, for instance, who are like, I survived the bombing in Nagasaki. And now yeah, this. Oh my God. They say yeah. that. We yeah. gasped. <laughs> They yeah. so so like that's cut out, but the producers claim that's not cut out because they mentioned Nagasaki. That's cut out because it doesn't move the story forward. They cut out like ten full minutes of the movie and added new scenes, so it's considerably shorter. But yeah, the movie was a big hit. A lot of people thought it was like just another B movie, and so it, it didn't have that kind of political reputation until its re-release in, in 2004 when people finally really saw the original wow, movie that in much, its original form. That far away, wow. Wait, I'm sorry. It, 2004 was when the original... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh it took God. until 2004, and it's called the director's cut. So it's like they act like... <laughs> They act like King of the Monsters is the cut that people always got to see, but that you know that wasn't, of course, the case. Wow! So for wow, so up until then, the like, if you you know Godzilla as a film, it's this American version. Mm. Like, like if you go to Blockbuster in the early two thousands, late nineties, you're not finding like the wow. original. Oh, I had no idea. Not even remotely. Wow! Yeah, that's such yeah, a so, shame. I. Because I, I, re- I truly was, like, really stunned by how serious this... I mean, there's a scene with uh, when Godzilla's attacking the city, there's a scene with a mom and a bunch of her kids crying in a corner, and she's like, we're going to be with dad soon. Like, we're going to be where daddy yeah. is soon. And <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is not the the monster romp around that I expected based yeah. on popular culture. I couldn't get over, and this is such a difference between American monster flicks and, you know, I, I don't want to say Japanese, because, like, I, I don't know enough about the Japanese genre of monster movies, but, I mean, this movie in particular, this movie lingers on the trauma of Godzilla and the destruction and like it's not fun i mean it's fun watching (laughs) Mm -hmm. him go you know rip apart all the miniatures and i loved all the miniatures in this by the way all the the, you know the little train sets and like that's all very fun to me just as a filmmaking thing but in story it's not fun it's it's disastrous and you really get a sense of the the death you know death toll and just there's scenes of 
you know, people in like makeshift hospital beds. Then there's kids crying. And oh yeah, just... like doing radiation tests on kids and then shaking uh, their heads yeah. solemnly. Oh my like, god, Jesus! I mean, it it really is like, you know, I don't know. It's just the way that that kind of monster or that kind of havoc being wreaked on a city is handled so differently than it would be in an American movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I actually had almost this exact thought last night while watching the movie. It was like, I don't know how it took me until this viewing, but it was like, while I was watching it last night, I realized halfway through Godzilla's destruction of Tokyo, I was like the first part of this movie, I really have a lot of fun with it. And then you hit I pretty much that point with the mother holding the children. And it's yeah. from that point on this movie hurts. It's so sad. It's just so it's so sad. And the older I get, the more I find that movie terrifying, because I think the older I get and the more I'm invested in this franchise, the more I myself have this overwhelming fear of the nuclear bomb and so like the more and more i expose myself to this movie the more it terrifies me on such an existential level that we can't do anything about and there's really something to the idea of you know the only country on earth that has had nuclear weapons used against it making a movie like this and even in this david callett book he points out that the images in this movie just all of the lingering on the, the death and the, the fallout. It's almost a catharsis if you're watching this as a Japanese audience because you finally get to see imagery of something happening to Japan that is out of their control and it's not their fault. They didn't deserve Godzilla. They, you know, they they say, oh, vaguely nuclear testing but we all know in that movie whose fault it yeah, is it, you know hydrogen bomb text testing and to that point chelsea and i both noticed last night i don't think united states or america is said a single time not. in the film right mm-hmm. there there's a complete lack of any western influence in the movie so you never see america they're never specifically referenced i will say if you know your history around 1954 like the Castle Bravo bombing happened early in 1954. I have the day. I think it's like March 1st, 1954. We bombed Bikini Atoll, and mm-hmm. there was a small Japanese fishing boat, the Lucky Dragon Number 5, that wound up getting coated in this nuclear ash. Oh. And so the crew, 23 members, came home sick. I wrote down his name. The so opening that, so of the, the movie it. is a reference to that, right? The opening scene mm-hmm. of Godzilla is a direct reference to that. Yes, yeah. Because it's like the, the sea like lights up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even that beginning, it was like the, the bright flash, and mm-hmm. the, I just immediately thought of the bomb. But yeah, that mm-hmm. opening scene with the you know the boat is, I think if you're you know a Japanese audience watching this, you know explicitly beginning that movie with a reference to that event is putting you in the mindset of like this thing that America did. We're not going to really, you know, we're not going to mention America throughout the rest of the film, but you know what we're alluding to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 I, I apologize if I mess up his name, but I'll, I'll try my best here. It's hard because it's, you know, Japanese, but Kubiyama Akichi was on the Lucky Dragon. He's the first victim of the hydrogen bomb. And so back then in, in 1954, they pointed out, you know, the the 
the only victims of the atomic bomb and the first victim of the H-bomb are both Japanese people at the hands of the Americans. So it's like a really heavy thing. And then that intro scene, of course, you know, the, the life preserver on the boat is inscripted number five as a reference to the lucky dragon number oh, five. Wow. The radio operator is the first one to die on the boat. He's the one who tries to like push back the wall of water that comes in. And yeah. it's the radio operator who wound up dying in real life. So there's like a direct parallel in and i know honda it was originally the boat it was originally going to start with the lucky dragon number five returning home from sea implying that this is why godzilla exists but honda said that having something that overt would be way too much for Mm. japanese audiences it would make the movie intolerable so he switched it so that it's this this eco maru a fictional boat that winds up winds up having a similar accident yeah I guess speaking of, you know, the this kind of ocean setting in the beginning and, you know, maybe having it be like having that kind of boat be the inciting incident of the movie and that being where Godzilla comes from. Wasn't he originally an octopus? Yes, he was. He was going to be an octopus. (laughs) What? Yeah. yeah. It was supposed to be a stop motion octopus because they were big <laughs> King Kong fans. So they wanted to do stop motion. Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted a big octopus because that yeah. was, I guess, what he was into. And, um, he, when they gave the when he gave the idea to uh, it was actually a novel writer Shiro Kayama who wound up writing the story for Godzilla he scrapped it and was like no way we're doing an octopus and then Eiji Tsuburaya who got special effects was like if we do stop motion for this movie it's gonna take years to do and it's gonna be way more expensive than we have the money to do so it's a man in a suit wow something about the a giant octopus is like still tough i think of the watchman movie adaptation where at the end of that graphic novel it's a fast squid and in the movie they're like we're not <laughs> we're, no we're no, 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 no we're not we're not doing the big squid the people behind this movie for whatever reason didn't give up on that idea because giant octopuses are a reoccurring theme throughout this early showa era of kaiju films they just constantly pop up in, in movies like Frankenstein Conquers the World, which is a weird Frankenstein movie. It's also the only kaiju film to directly show the bombing of Hiroshima. Whoa. And oh my then, God. But Frankenstein's like, there? If, for, okay, so it's like, so it's like they <laughs> have the. This. It's okay, so it's like, I think the grandson of Victor Frankenstein in Germany during World War II has this beating heart. He's like, this is Frankenstein's undying heart. It can never die. He gives it to the Japanese, like, get this out of here. America's about to come in. We're about to lose. Everyone's going to come in. We're done. So he gives it to the Japanese. They take it back to Hiroshima, and they're like, good. We got this thing secured. And the bomb hits, and oh you watch everything God. blow up. And wow. the is heart grows into with- this little boy, like this little this little Frankenstein guy. We really? Yeah, he then well he does grow giant as well at the end because it's oh. like now that he's infused with radiation he constantly grows like this feral child. It's like running around the Japanese woods and he winds up being like twenty feet at the end and like what in the international? From? It's nineteen sixty five. So in oh the end God. he winds up getting swallowed by a giant octopus depending on which version of the yeah. movie you watch. <laughs> of course, is it affiliated <laughs> in any way with Universal or no? <laughs> no, it- so. I think what happened was, and it starts with King Kong vs. Godzilla, they got the rights to King Kong vs. Frankenstein, and then they switched it so it was Godzilla, but they still like this Frankenstein idea, and so in 65, they're like, let's do something with Frankenstein, then Universal stepped up and was like, we have Frankenstein, you can't use the rights. 
But then they went to like this legal lengths to find out that actually Universal only owns the likeness to the original Frankenstein. They yeah. don't actually own the name to the character. So oh. Japan got to do their own version of the monster. So now it's not affiliated. So it just okay. doesn't look I, like the Boris Karloff. Just, that's, yeah. Okay. Because Frankenstein like just as a, you know, it's the book. It's yeah, the, yeah, I love yeah. that. I love creative ways to work around copyright. That's so fun. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have a couple of random questions. Uh, one, a minute ago, you mentioned the guy in the suit. Is that guy still alive? There, I, is, yeah, the Wikipedia, about Wikipedia tells me this man is 108 years old or something. <laughs> and then I was like, that can't be right. I love the exasperated yeah, sigh you gave in response to The look on your face is killing me because I, when I Googled him, I was like, is, uh, I forget his name. I, I was like, is this actor still alive? And the fact that all the results were like, nobody knows is really no, fucking me up. No, we all know. This was like a recent trauma for God. Godzilla fans. I oh think this happened in 2018. <laughs> he passed away and it was like a super traumatic event for Godzilla fans. Oh like this God. is the death of Godzilla. Yeah. I made a tribute video and like I remember being so upset while making that video. It broke my heart. No. I actually met his daughter and she's the nicest person really? on the entire planet. Is she I, still I, alive? She's still alive. Yeah, I met her a year ago in 2019. Wow. And then uh, how, how old is she? I don't know how old she is. Her name is Sone Nakajima. Um, I don't know how old she is, but she's she's older and she's so nice, man. She's just so loving and giving and she's just got this such deep admiration for her father's work and the fans of her father's work but like this is a a recent trauma in the community like people are very upset about this why is it such a like a weird like like for the lame like if i just google it not knowing anything why does it appear to be such a a mystery that's so bizarre because yeah if you if you look on his wikipedia there's no death date which is actually kind of cool like i hope if i am cool enough one day to have a wikipedia that no one ever puts my death date and then i come up when you google me it'll be like age 476 what it could be is it could be credit to Katsumi Tezuka, who was the suit actor who was supposed to play Godzilla. He is Godzilla who's supposed to knock down the Capitol building, but you know he got injured while filming. And so, that so is the guy I was appear. Googling. That is the there guy I was looking up. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Tezuka is also a suit actor. He played Anguirus in the next film, and he appears a couple times in, in other monster suits. But nakajima is like the man who is godzilla like oh. universally that is godzilla and so that when he when he passed away a couple of years ago it was like very traumatic because yeah, you sent me a video that i i watched just before we started recording mm-hmm. and that was of that was of him right that uh it's like this um i'll have to show it to you james it's really cool but it just is this really slick video i don't know how to describe it it's very cool it's like a yeah. nike commercial yeah i know like that's the nuts part <laughs> <laughs> i was like this might be a little bit embarrassing but like the first time i watched that ad because it was you know fresh enough after he had passed away i like teared up at the end and then oh it comes god. on it's like some commercial for like coffee or something i was like oh my <laughs> god it, it happens <laughs> they got me <laughs> Yeah, James, this thing is edited. Like, think of, like, a a Nike commercial, and it's, like, LeBron, and just, yeah, it's kind of, like, CGI slick. Everything is just really smooth. 
But like instead of basketball, it's the actor getting into the Godzilla suit <laughs> and like just going to fucking town. And it's talking about how the suit is. It said it was two hundred pounds. Yeah. So the original suit was two hundred twenty pounds, and how? it was so intolerable that Nakajima couldn't move inside, and he would just constantly collapse, and they'd have to pull him out, and he's just knocked out, sweat like they drain buckets of sweat out of this suit. And uh, it, it was so bad that they sawed it in half. And so whenever you see the bottom half of Godzilla, it's just like he's wearing this big pants of oh Godzilla. My God. The top half is this big upper piece. And then they built like a slimmer only for full body shot suit that he could move around in a little more. And he had but to yeah, wear like, this sometimes in water. Like he had to wear it in water. He oh had to wear it. And it was, you got to think how hot it was in that studio with all these lights beaming down oh, on God. him. It's, it's in the middle of the summer when they're filming this. So it's hundred degrees and he's in this 200 pound suit and he's just knocked out constantly sweating. He could only make it a few feet at a time before they had to pull him out and then they submerge him. And that was like a, a thing. This guy, Hiro Nakajima, is, is like one of the reasons he's such a legend is because he's so invincible. You hear all these stories about him playing Rodan. He's suspended in the air, flying. The, the, the wires snap, and he just plummets like into this giant water tank. And then he's like playing this monster, Varan, a couple years later, crawling. And then these explosives go off you know, underneath his groin and wind up injuring him. He couldn't tell anybody because he's... He's like a professional. Like he would not tell anybody that any of these things like would hurt him or bother him because he felt that if he showed any sign of weakness, he'd be replaced because his face isn't seen. Yeah. And he was so passionate about the role that he couldn't give it up. And and so like you hear all these stories and he's just this legend in the community. Was he able to reprise the role of Godzilla multiple times? Yeah. He plays okay. Godzilla Holy from shit. 1954 until 1972. He played oh Godzilla. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And for someone who's, you know, for a character who's like you just said you don't see the face of the actor that's amazing that he was able to retain that role yeah, yeah. i also wish i i wanted to fact check this in this book before i mentioned it but yeah uh you mentioned yeah the, the lights and stuff in there are really hot and to add to that they to make godzilla in the movie kind of lumber really realistically because he's so big you know he's got to move kind of slow and to make that look real and not like a guy just kind of pretending to they shot <laughs> all of his footage at a really high frame rate mm. and then when you play it at 24 frames a second he's moving kind of slow but what happens when you shoot something on film at a really you high frame rate light. you have to blow it out oh, with no. light because the frames going through the camera you know they're flying by so fast you need more light for every you know the image to be picked up on each frame mm -hmm. so on well, top of everything <laughs> yes good God. extra light yeah uh -huh. and, and and like to add on to that they found that if they played the footage back he moved unnaturally slow and so in order to give the impression of mass but still keep the the speed they wanted he had to like like super run these scenes like he had to like oh. move very quickly through them <laughs> in order to get it to look right so this guy like had to he had to endure some stuff and then i, I couldn't even imagine and then i i will say that there's this special feature on this criterion set of godzilla and in it nakajima describes that at one point they had fixed like a nozzle above his head in the, in the mouth to spray flames and it would like oh, hurt God. his face you know these flames oh. would, would like be right in his face as his face comes like getting singed. I have not 
heard anywhere else outside of his interview about that, but I'll believe him because he played the character. But yeah, I guess at oh, yeah, one point they must have had flames in that head. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask about that when he he breathes fire. In I the forgot movie. that he breathes fire. But when he does it, it almost <laughs> looks like it's a mist coming out. And at first, I was like, did he just freeze that bridge? But then he like breathes it onto some buildings and they catch fire. And I was like, oh, it's supposed to be fire. But it almost looks like a fog or a mist coming out. Yeah, yeah. So the the atomic breath, there's like a couple different ways they did it back in the day. They they did have a nozzle up there. And that's why I was saying, like, I've never heard anyone else confirm this outside of his one Criterion interview. But the nozzle sprayed like mist or water, depending mm-hmm. on what shot they were doing. And so, um, like, that's one way they did it. But then they also animated it. Like, they went through and painted. So Which I'm assuming like they did for his, uh, like, this the... His for the back, dorsal which, fins, yeah. Yes, which uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. glow whenever he's about oh, to yeah. breathe the fire. I was really impressed by, there's a lot of, like, you know, comps in this movie and mats where you're layering, you know, stuff on top of each other to make one cohesive scene. And there were mm-hmm. so many scenes in this where I was, like, still to this day really genuinely impressed by how, like, cohesive it all looked there's a shot where i think he's walking towards the train and there's you got the train in the foreground and there's people running Mm -hmm. from it and it all just looks like it was shot in one thing i i just thought that was so cool the way that that's all stitched together it's so impressive yeah, they did a, like a little bit of reverse of that too, because there's like a scene when Godzilla pops up over a building, and you can see people like turning lights on in the building, yeah. and they like they put those people in there, they composite them into the building. I and there's there's also a lot of shots that like don't have Godzilla that you would never know were special effects shots. So like shots of them on the beach, they they painted up the mountains to make them look bigger and they like painted some of the sea and then they painted footsteps all up the hills. I actually wrote down the name of the guy who's responsible for this because I just found out through that Honda book, but his name's Hiroshi uh, Mokuyama. So he's the composite guy. So he did all the composite stuff for the film. And are you talking about like the scene job. earlier on on Udo Island where it's like yeah. the the overhead shots kind of of, of the streams of people fleeing? Yeah, so there's a lot of the stuff in Odo Island is not actually there on set. A lot of it was painted Odo in. There, there's these like matte island or these like matte paintings on glass that they did. I'm not totally technical with this stuff, so I don't entirely understand it. But yeah, they like painted footsteps all up the hills, so it looked like Godzilla had walked through there, and mm. they painted the hills to make them look bigger. Also, a while back, you mentioned that Godzilla, the word, comes from Japan. Yeah. So what is Gojira, which I've heard, and I always just assumed that Gojira was the name of the original film and then mm-hmm. Americanized version was Godzilla. That's incorrect, you're saying? No, it's not not incorrect. That is okay. the name of the film. Um, oh, it, it is. It, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so like, and fans might get upset about my pronunciation, but it's, it's Gojira is the Japanese word. And then back... In current day, the way we we would translate that, the the way we translate the characters is Gojira. So it's Gojira or Gojira, if you want to pronounce it like that. But then back in 1954, the way they translated was Gojila. So it just came out as Godzilla when they translated it. Oh. That's so weird that that's how that worked out because Godzilla just seems 
like that would have been invented on its own. Yeah. Like, like Godzilla lizard. sounds like, you know, Master Lizard or yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> sounds very deliberate. Yeah. yeah you got God in the name and that was just an accident. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of little that. happy accidents with this movie. Yeah. It's funny too. And I guess, you know, we'll wrap up by just um, talking, you know, we've obviously talked mostly about this first movie, but uh, just, I just want to talk a little bit about like where the franchise in general, like where Godzilla starts to trend after this. Cause when I was reading about the later movies, in a weird way, I almost thought of Freddy Krueger because Freddy Krueger in that first Nightmare on Elm Street is terrifying. I mean, he can be funny, but he's scary. Like, he is not to be fucked with. But by the sixth movie, he's, I don't know. Playing uh, video games. Playing video games, and there's Inagata DeVita playing, and Johnny Depp's there talking about your brain on drugs. And it's it just gets, you know, he turns into a cartoon. He's playing Nintendo. Uh and then in this uh, this Callet book, he says, uh, so Godzilla may have originated an austere political metaphor, but he was popularized as a superhero. He dances happy jigs, imitates rock stars, acts like a wrestler, talks with his pals, sometimes even flies, all while saving the earth from such menaces as a monster made of living pollution, a ginormous bionic cockroach, and even a giant killer rose. And I think that that's so, like just having spent so much of this episode talking about how he's this metaphor for this post-war trauma and... Um, you know, the like a warning of the dangers of uh, science as a means towards destruction. The fact that he later, it seems, becomes kind of a cartoon and even a hero is very bizarre to me. Yeah, there are like a few distinct eras with Godzilla. So the first era lasts from 1954 to 1964. And that's like the villain Godzilla, like not to be messed with. They still... Ironically, I say that the third installment, King Kong vs. Godzilla, is actually a parody on giant monster movies. So it's like mm -hmm. intentionally very over the top and funny. So Godzilla's played up for comedy in that one. Mm -hmm. But it, it's still like in the era where Godzilla is to be taken seriously. And that's how Honda always wanted him. Honda was very upset with the later direction of Godzilla being silly. Because although he realized that the movies appealed to kids, he felt that the human character should act silly. But Godzilla being this metaphor for the nuclear bomb should never be treated that way. And so I was always something he was disappointed in but there was like a an, an era from also 1964 because two films came out that year so the second half of that year until 1969 that era is defined by like a middle ground transitional Godzilla they were doing a little more with him he was geared a little more towards kids he's still taken semi-seriously but he's he's much more silly and then from 69 to 75 he's like very silly and, and over the top and then he makes a resurgence in the 80s so from 89 or from uh i guess kind of 89 because 84 is this like standalone experience on its own and they actually made a raymond burr sequel to that one in america as well <laughs> that is another story but <laughs> from like from yeah from like 1989 to 1995 the the franchise was defined by this power of nature it was all about nature's wrath and nature getting back on man and, and all this stuff and then you know you have the american 98 godzilla which is a touchy subject for godzilla fans oh is it widely disliked it's, it's one of the most disrespectful adaptations of Ooh! any material ever 
<laughs> I kind of think it'd be fun to, if we have you back, we should review that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, okay. okay. I want to do that. I think then. it would be fun to do like this, you know, this review of the original, like this is pure Godzilla. Fast forward to like the ultimate middle finger fucking to inspector gadget yeah. running yeah. around i will was... say the trailer for that movie scared the shit out didn't of it use a wallflower <laughs> song uh, oh, I don't know. uh didn't wallflowers cover bowie's hero oh, maybe God. for it possibly yes yeah you're absolutely right that <laughs> <Yeah>. did happen <laughs> I just, all i know about that movie besides the fact that it's matthew roger i just love uh the the trailer for that one I remember is just the scene where he, Godzilla comes out of the water and there's like the fishermen on the docks. Yeah, scared mm-hmm. the living shit out of me. <laughs> I saw it in a theater. I don't know what movie I was seeing, but I that's still such a vivid memory. I doubt it is that scary or good. No, uh, in real life. No, no. <laughs> no, it's it's such a strange film. Like every like, if I were to ask you describe Godzilla, pretty much everything you would say doesn't apply to Godzilla in that movie. He's not indestructible. He can't breathe atomic <laughs> breath. He like is like hunched down. He's he's like a T Rex, and it's just like everything that is Godzilla that isn't. So people, that's like a really uh, rough patch for Ooh, Godzilla. Okay, okay, I think I want to do that. Well, that, well, well, yeah. Like ninety five was this big event godzilla vs. destroyers build as like the death of godzilla that's even the subtitle in japan it's like we're done with this franchise this is it it ties back into this movie it's all about the effects the ramifications of using the oxygen destroyer in 54 now we see what that does in 95 oh. and it, it causes all sorts of other problems and so it's like this big we're tying it all together it's a done event and then the 98 Godzilla comes out because they sold it to America. Oh my and Japan God. was so offended by the American I portrayal of Godzilla. It. They resurrected the franchise <laughs> and that ran from 1999 until 2004. And interestingly, that era of Godzilla is a lot about forgetting about the past. It's all about the way that the current generation has moved on. They make jokes about the bomb. They don't take the war seriously. And so there's a lot of spirituality with the spirits of the old past, like the people who died in the war now coming back to seek revenge through Godzilla on these people for disrespecting tradition. And that that whole era kind of has those themes, but specifically in one movie does that really well where it ties all these themes together. And then now in the modern day, we have two sectors of Godzilla. So America and Japan are running simultaneous. And America is very focused on nature again. It's back to the 90s themes of nature. That's what Mike Doherty's film is all Uh about, nature. And then uh, in Japan, he's this ultimate political figure again it's used to completely satirize the government tear them apart this movie shin godzilla in 2016 came out it's one of the most popular japanese movies of modern day everyone keeps telling me to watch yeah whatever yeah Yeah. we tweeted that we were doing this and just shin godzilla shin godzilla Godzilla, yeah nonstop. it's it's a lot of people consider it the closest thing to this original movie to come out since the original because it's so overtly political, very critical of the Japanese government, also of international relations with America. So that's another theme in that movie. But it's all about Godzilla as a political tool again. And then there's oh, okay. un- currently anime stuff going on in Japan, which teeters with either nature or politics and all that stuff as well. But 
It's, he is a very malleable character you can do a lot with. That's so I, cool, man. I think that these kind of characters, like, you know, Godzilla and, you know, the anger of him being uh, essentially, like, loaned out to America specifically. I also think <laughs> of uh, Sadako from uh, Ringu, who is in the American version of Samara. There was similar anger, um, also specifically because Sadako, if you read into that character, she also is a bit of a um, post-war traumatic, um, this idea of, like, the trauma of children after the war. And, you know, like, these characters that are very specifically... You, if you remove the the Japanese context of them, what do you have left? You know, and mm-hmm. I could to- I totally understand why there would be anger if you know someone took a character that is so informed and so molded by you know these events in your your country's past, specifically really traumatic events, and just did their own thing with it and felt like, yeah, disregarded so much of that. And what makes that character, you know, the character, man, I gotta say, Derek, you talking about the franchise really (laughs) makes me wish that I could sit down and watch them all. Because honestly, the the way you're talking about it reminds me a little bit of a James Bond. Cause for a couple of years, I got really deep into that franchise and it's the same thing. There's the different eras. It it Mm -hmm. veers between seriousness and silliness. There's occasional one-off, like just solitary experiences that you just have to be like, no, you can ignore that. Just don't worry about that thing. And yeah, like similarly, I I really don't know much about James Bond. The only James Bond movies I've seen are one of, I think I saw, I saw Skyfall and then I've seen Casino Royale, but not, the new Casino Royale, that weird, like, no, some weird technically not part yeah. of the canon Casino Royale. So yeah. my, my experience with James Bond is very weird. <laughs> but <laughs> That's uh, a parallel that people bring up a lot, though. These two franchises are compared a lot, actually. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I've never actually heard someone make that particular comparison, but I just like the sheer volume of James yeah. Bond. People always compare that to Godzilla, and that's like a base point for Godzilla has more movies than James Bond. Could you yeah. believe it's it? It's the longest running film series. For sure. It yeah. is. Just, yeah. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, so that's like a very often made comparison. And actually, funny enough, Godzilla movies in the 70s were very inspired by James Bond. So you got like oh, secret yeah, agents. Yeah. yeah, you got like secret agents running around trying to stop these invasion plots and Godzilla's oh, there honestly, being like, a superhero. 70s James Bond is when it gets silly and dumb. And I am a little shocked that there was never James Bond versus Godzilla. Like, oh, that been especially so in good. the 70s, that's when it would have happened. Like 75 oh, would have been fucking I mean, prime for I it. I say this all the time, but I just love 70s movies, just the vibes and everything about them. Oh, those 70s Godzillas with like secret agents. I'm, that I'm sounds very like a good time. Them. The one that uh the one that feels the most 70s is Godzilla versus Hedora. It's the weirdest film I think I've ever seen. I've seen some weird movies, you know. I sat through Mandy. I liked it. Yeah. But, like, Godzilla vs. Hedera is such a trip. It feels like you're on drugs the whole movie. The visuals are all... It, like, cuts between cartoon and live action, and that's the one where Godzilla flies at one point. Oh, oh what, so like, on his back? Is that the gif he, I've seen? He jumps, like, he yeah. jumps up and wraps his tail up and then shoots his atomic breath at the ground so he can propel himself. Yes. Yeah. I want to watch this. It's yeah, a very so 70s psychedelic movie. There's so many weird gifs of Godzilla that I'm, like... <laughs> 
are it's like I never know are these from parodies or these are the actual movies and the fact that I'm realizing no most of these are just from the movies is very exciting oh man the interesting thing is like most of them are from like three movies Godzilla's only a superhero which I also find interesting that in America we view Godzilla as a hero when in Japan he's never really been considered that yeah because he's only a hero for like four movies outside of that he's like either transitioning he's on like a teeter point where he could be but he's also gonna knock down your city in the efforts of stopping the monster He's only a hero for like four movies, and that's the they're the weirder ones. But <laughs> oh my yeah. god, damn! Oh man, I'm I'm really wanting to check more of these out now. Like <laughs> it's, I, it's just it's so daunting because there's so many. But I'm genuinely so fascinated after having watched this first one mm-hmm. that I think I'm gonna check some of these out. But yeah, I hundred <laughs> percent yes, we're gonna do the 98 Godzilla. We'll have you back uh, sometime soon. Uh, and that'll be very exciting. Yeah, because this this was a great conversation. I'm so glad yes, that we was, had you. This was fantastic. And where can people find you? Because I know that you've had your YouTube channel, you said since 2014? Damn, man. <laughs> yeah, so I, I started YouTube in like 2012, but then I started a Godzilla channel in 2014 because I was like, nice. that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what I've been doing. So you can check me out on YouTube uh, at Dman1954. Um, for horror fans, because none of my viewers appreciate it, but I just <laughs> recently did a whole set of like the Fly piano cover. So if you're interested in that at all, I love that soundtrack from 1986. So Aww. that's that's the only thing I'll plug. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, if I could get any love for that, I love those movies. So. I love the Fly. <laughs> yeah, the Fly sure. is also very similar, just like, sad like you feel like a sad you know sad kind of monster movie (laughs) in the end and same the end of this this original godzilla like you know underwater godzilla and with the oxygen the score in that part is beautiful beautiful it was that can bring tears to my eyes that that scene that just moves me so much sarazawa is so sad he's one of my favorite characters in fiction he's so tragic that dude loses literally everything throughout the course of that movie i love him and the fact that his laboratory looks like it's on the universal lot (laughs) it's like this weird fake building and it's i'm obsessed with everything about him he's great yeah Uh, yeah. Oh, man. I could just keep talking about this forever. But yeah, so we will have you back for more Godzilla. But thank you so much, Derek. This was so great. People are going to be so, so happy we finally talked about Godzilla. And, you know, I feel like this was this is what Godzilla deserved. It was like this was such an informative conversation. I've learned so much about that series. Definitely. Yeah. It's really making me want to go watch more. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Lies. That's what I'm here for. Yes. That's all I want to do. I want to spread the gospel of Godzilla. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Godzilla? Godzilla. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Uh, you want to sign us out? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, huge thanks to Derek. Follow him on YouTube at DMan1954 for all your Godzilla needs. Uh, as far as we go, you can follow Dead Meat on social media at Dead Meat James on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Carebeck, C-R-E-V-E-C-C on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want merch, DeadMeatStore.com. Uh, until next week, I'm James. I'm Chelsea. And this was Derek, and this has been the Dead Meat Podcast. <laughs>